0: We begin tonight, um, uh, I'm going to do something that is probably foolish in the context of uh, American culture today, um, but I'm going to try to transcend politics and see some profound kingdom principles about what's going on, especially as it flows out of the implications of Nebuchadnezzar's image. Many believers have been mired in political controversy for so long that there's a whole bunch of us that can't even have a conversation about the issues going on in our world without lining up, frankly, on one side of the aisle or the other, right? It's like the church, the believers even, have been captivated by the powers of this world. So I'm going to challenge us tonight to lay aside all of our political ideologies and to try to think tonight only biblically, not loaded with any political ideology or even any current events for the moment um, and then process through the current events and where we stand only biblically. Alright, so we begin with a key concept. Write it in. Here it is. The deteriorating materials have major implication for what happens in the history of human government. Okay, one of the fascinating aspects of the statue Is that predicts a relentless deterioration of the government, right? As each uh, successive empire comes along, basically the 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 next empire uh, puts in ashes and rubble the previous one and and builds right on top of it with this growing strength and evil, right? So, um, here's what Nebuchadnezzar's statue foretells, and look what actually happened across this what has happened so far because we're obviously not at the iron mixed with clay yet um, but we're, you know, who knows, we're, we're, we're a lot closer than we were uh, but look at this, the forms of government that unfold through history, Babylon, here's your blank, it's a, it was a monarchy, right, one leader, Nebuchadnezzar and then for a brief time his son, Belshazzar, okay, then came Medo-Persia, the arms of silver, right, it was an ol- oligarchy and I'm giving you the quick definitions here, uh, these are Pretty good, uh, even though they're very, very (laughs) short definitions. It's several leaders. Okay, and then came Greece. Uh, It became an aristocracy. So here what you have is many nobles who are a part of the conversation of where the the nation should go and so forth. Uh, And then came Rome, which of course is the classic imperialism. So what you have in imperialism, here's your blank, the centralized government with many Governors, or as the Greek uses the term, prelates, right? Like um, like uh, Pilate was a prelate, a governor, a Roman governor. So centralized government with many governors and military leaders, each struggling for their share of the power, right? So they even had a senate. Don't think of today's senate, but there's all these all these different leaders in this imperial. Uh, uh, things, some of them military, some of them nobles, etc., all of this put together into this large imperial government. And then finally, the world today, of course, is strongly moving, in not, not exclusively, but strongly moving toward democracy. There's your blank. Today, moving toward democracy. And the idea of a democracy is a government of the people ruled by the collective opinions of individuals, right? That's the concept of the vote. And each of them, at least theoretically, this is the idea of democracy, they each have equal say because they go to the ballot box and answer questions and elect leaders and so forth. So according to Nebuchadnezzar's statue, I want you to just stop and think about that for a minute. If human government is deteriorating, what does this mean about democracy? (laughs) It's at the bottom of the pile. Now some of you may be thinking, wait a minute, I thought democracy was God's form of government. After all, America's God's country and the godly government must be democracy, right? There's, again, that, that intermixing of the political with the biblical, sometimes completely blindly. But before you boycott this session or you label me as unpatriotic, let me explain what I mean, and I'll do this in our application. So, amazingly enough, yes, we're going to application right away because pretty much all of tonight is application, but as you can see, we have a lot to unpack. So, here's your blanks. Never place your hope in any human government. Let me add, we'll briefly come back, although this is not what we're focusing on tonight. Never put your hope in any economic philosophy, right? Because the bottom line is, is then in dictatorships all the way to uh, democracies, you have selfish people trying to get as much as they can and using whatever system is there to get as much from the system as they can, right? But most importantly tonight, never place your hope in any human government. So as we look at the statute's implications for government, I want us to consider several aspects of American history. And so there's going to be a bit of a a history lesson tonight, but I think you'll be both surprised uh, and amazed. Um, So the original foundation of our country wasn't primarily focused on democracy. That surprises a lot. If you go back and really read, in fact, I don't know if you know, but after the Revolutionary War, despite all the price they paid to get out from under the monarchy of, of Britain, um, they tried, many people tried to make George Washington, to get him to become King George I of America. Can you? It's, it's inconceivable today, but that actually was a strong movement. But fortunately, Washington calmed them all down and said, no, I'm not taking a crown, that's why we just lost so many lives, um, uh, so, but many people wanted a monarchy, interestingly enough, uh, uh, among the 13 colonies. Um, so the, the fundamental principles were, were, were mixed still, but they weren't fundamentally primarily about d- democracy. So let me give you the historical, factual information. Here it is. Write it in. While America established a democratic approach to choosing leaders, right? No question about it. There's no aristocracy. There's no noble, nobility, and there's there's no um, uh, royal family, etc. None of that. So while America established a democratic approach to choosing leaders, the nation was founded primarily as a republic, right? America was established primarily as a republic, and this is a huge distinction that very few people pay attention to now. So here's the definition of a republic. Ready? A republic is a nation with a form of government based upon fundamental principles, this is really important, fundamental principles which the people believe are unchanging and true. That's a republic, based upon fundamental principles that the people believe as a whole, not universally, but as a whole, are unchanging and true. So a republic necessarily has fundamental shared beliefs. And so here's a key contrast with democracy. Ready? Here's your blank. A key contrast, a democracy doesn't necessarily have to have any principles at all. Uh, Think about that. It's it's remarkable. So it's, it's possible for a democracy to be committed to nothing other than the will of the voters. A democracy can literally be a government based upon the collective public opinion. In a pure democracy, in fact, think about this. In a pure democracy, right and wrong are determined by 51% of the voters. But in a republic, which is what America was founded as, right and wrong are established by guiding principles that are foundational to the existence of the nation, and they aren't changed by a simple majority vote. So what about America? By the way, I'm not making an editorial comment there. I'm just laying out factual history. Whether you believe that's how America should have been or whether the founders did it right or didn't do it right, that kind of thing, that's not what I'm, the point I'm making. What I'm making. The point I'm making is this is actually the history of America. Um, so despite the pervasive current attempt to rewrite the nation's history, the truth is that this republic was founded on emphatically biblical principles. Okay, I'm gonna give you details in just a second. But a statement like this is so controversial today that most people won't even have the conversation. And interestingly enough, people don't wanna hear evidence. (laughs) They don't wanna know historical evidence because they believe what they believe. But did you know in our history, think about this, this this boggles the mind knowing where we are today. In American history, There have been more than 10,000 U.S. Supreme Court decisions that were explicitly stated as based upon scripture. And the scriptural reference was in the Supreme Court's decision. Amazing, isn't it? So listen to the Supreme Court's decision on February 29th, leap year happened to be, 1892. This was rendered by Chief Justice Josiah Brewer. Ready? Here it is. Our laws and our institutions, and this is so important, I'm having you write some of these in, right? Look at the quote, and here's your blanks. Our laws and our institutions must necessarily be based upon and embody the teachings of the Redeemer of humanity. (laughs) This is the U.S. Supreme Court, right? It is impossible that it should be otherwise. And in this sense, and to this extent, our civilization and our institutions are emphatically Christian. That is... A historical decision by the U.S. Supreme Court happened to be a unanimous one. And look at this. <coughs> because of a general recognition of this truth, the question has seldom been presented to the courts. In other words, what he's saying is basically this essentially never comes up because everybody knows this is true. Yet we find then that here's the, here's the actual case, the up versus the commonwealth it was decided that Christianity, general Christianity, is and always has been part of the common law. Now, he clarifies, look at this, not Christianity with an established church. In other words, they did not want the Church of England. They did not want the Church of America. They wanted the church to be the church and the government to be the government, right? But notice, not Christianity with an established church, but Christianity with liberty of conscience, for all. So let me compare this to today's myth. Here's your next blank. Today's myth, this nation was founded on individual rights, right? Pure democracy and individual rights, and I do what I do, and you do what what you do, founded on individual rights. But the real foundation of our republic came from the widespread belief among the people that there are fundamental principles of truth that are more important than individual rights. That is a republic. See, early Americans believed that it was each individual's responsibility to sacrifice their own desires, and sometimes even their rights, for the greater and more important purpose of guarding the principles for which the nation stood. Our real history is that our society was founded upon the principles of God's law. Amazing, look at this. One of our presidents, of course, July 14th, 1821, John Quincy Adam declared, the highest glory of the American Revolution was this. This is an astounding statement. It connected in one indissoluble bond the principles of, here's your blank, civil government, right? It connected them. Indissoluble bond with, of civil, uh, civil government with the principles of Christianity. From the day of the Declaration of Independence, of course, The American people were bound by the laws of God, there's your blank, which they all and by the laws of the gospel, which they nearly all acknowledged as the rules of their conduct. Imagine it. What a statement. So it's amazing how easily we miss the obvious, right? Take a step back for a minute. Almost no one really remembers, although we say it all the time, that the Bill of Rights was actually an afterthought to the nation's constitution. It was an amendment, of course, happens to be the first amendment. But think of that. The Bill of Rights was an amendment to the founding constitution. And even fewer recognize that the underlying reason for the first amendment was that the founders believed that individual citizens of our country, rather than the elite, the politicians, or the bureaucrats were the most likely group to uphold the truths upon which the Republic was founded. That's why that huge, important, giving it to the people to protect the Republic, not trusting a small group of people with a lot of power. Now, uh, So not only was the Republic established on explicitly biblical principles, but the founders even had the insight to recognize that democracy and liberty couldn't stand unless the people are committed to, you ready for this? To virtue in their individual lives. Again, I'm making such what sound like outrageous statements today. uh, So I'm giving you literally historical quotes. You ready for this? On June 21, 1776, right, right before the signing of the Declaration. John Adams wrote, Leaders may plan for liberty. But it is religion and morality alone. Look at that blank. It is religion and morality alone which can establish the principles upon which freedom can securely stand. The only foundation of a free constitution is, you ready for this? Is pure virtue. That's your blank. And if this cannot be inspired into our people, virtue, right? purity if this cannot be inspired into our people in a greater measure than we have it now they may change their rulers we may right elect new people into positions of power they may change their rulers and forms of government but they will not obtain a lasting liberty wow this statement leads to a principle that has been understood by philosophers and historians for centuries and it's actually a great paradox you ready for your blank I know we have a lot of blanks tonight but this is so content rich I don't want anybody to miss out right a great paradox you ready the greatest enemy of freedom is are you ready for this the greatest enemy of freedom is freedom freedom that's right and this leads to key concept number one here's your blank freedom has the paradoxical effect of undermining itself, unless there are moral boundaries that are freely accepted, lived out, and relentlessly protected by those who have the freedom. If freedom is always all you care about, then the freedom is the greatest enemy to a society which is allowing freedom to all because everyone is after their own. Amazingly, and that leads to key concept number two. Freedom, here's your blank, can only last. Oh, listen to this. Freedom can only last when those who are free embrace, you ready? Embrace self-imposed limits to their freedom. Surprise. What did Paul say to me? All things are lawful. All things, uh, but all things aren't profitable and I will be mastered by nothing. I'll give up lots of lawful freedoms for the great purpose of bringing in God's kingdom. So these principles and these concepts highlight the fragility of democracies and free societies. Democracy that has the purpose of protecting God's principles can stand. That's what we heard over and over from the founders. But democracy that focuses primarily on individual rights cannot sustain itself because it leads to the glorification of selfishness and greed. And guess what? In a free society where everyone is selfish and everyone is greedy and people lie when they want to and steal when they want to, when that happens, you cannot have a free society. Unfortunately, this has been the tragic pattern of, you ready for this, of all previous democracies. In fact, democracy began 3,000 years ago, around 1,000 B.C., with the Greek city-states. And after that, it emerged intermittently, right, throughout history in various places. But unfortunately, no democracy has ever, ever lasted very long. In fact, ours is the longest, um, at almost 250 years now. So the reason is clear. The self-centeredness of individuals... In fact, you ready for this? The reason capitalism work isn't because it's a godly and righteous economic philosophy. So it's fine if you think capitalism makes the most sense as an economic philosophy, but don't ever deify capitalism. Don't ever make capitalism a philosophy that's inherently righteous. Because the reality is, is any economic philosophy would work if everyone would care more about others than themselves. But because any economic philosophy has in it people who are sinners and selfish, the reality is they all grind down, including capitalism. So um, when the 13 colonies were still a part of England, this is a remarkable historical study that happened by the British historian Alexander Tyler. He published his research about the history of all democracies that had ever existed. So at that point, Think of that, that would have been the 18th and early 19th century. So there there still had been almost, there had been 2,800 years worth of democracies that he studied as a historian. Here was his conclusion. You ready for this? Here's his conclusion in one sentence. A democracy cannot exist as a permanent form of government. He was stating that as a historian, not as a philosopher. Notice, he goes on. It can only exist until... The voters discover that they can vote for themselves money from the public treasury. Watch this. From that moment on, the majority always votes for the candidates promising the most money from the public treasury. Does this sound familiar? When we have just printed $6 trillion that don't have any actual value or backing, right? He goes on. The result of this is that democracy always collapses because of loose fiscal policy and then inevitably, you ready, every time it is followed by a dictatorship. So now, this is so important. I've put this into your uh, notes. You don't have to write in any blanks, but I wanted you to see this. Look at this. He He makes this amazing insight in the history of democracies. The average age of the world's great civilizations has been 200 years. These nations have progressed through the following sequence, from bondage to spiritual faith. That's the revolution for us, right? The revolution, the casting off the shackles of a government-run church and a, and a, 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 a royalty who has all of the privileges and a... Uh, aristocracy with all the privileges right so notice out of bondage from bondage to spiritual faith from spiritual faith to great courage to revolution again from great courage to liberty our constitution from liberty to abundance oh my we're going to read some scripture on that from abundance to selfishness from selfishness to complacency from complacency to apathy, and from apathy to dependency, right? Waiting for the money to come, dependent from someplace else, from dependency back to bondage. What an amazing prophet, even though he only was speaking as a historian. Now, one fascinating aspect of America's history has been the presumption that the combination of biblical principles lived out among the people and a democratic form of government can stand. The two put together, not democracy on its own and not a theocracy, but people living biblical principles and keeping accountable the government so that the power remains at the level of people who are living with biblical principles. But for the last three generations, we've seen the folly of democracy when the biblical principles are entirely jettisoned. See, the Word of God identifies the folly. In fact, be turning with me now to Deuteronomy chapter uh, 11. Deuteronomy chapter 11. It's the fifth book in the Bible, the fifth of the Pentateuch, the five first five books of the Bible, right? Um, and um, right before Joshua. Um, so the word uh, shows us the folly where each individual lives their own way. And we see this precept repeatedly, actually, in Deuteronomy. We'll go into Deuteronomy a couple times tonight. And Moses identified that the nation of Israel wasn't obeying God, so he gave them a really stark warning. Look with me at Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 26. Chapter 11, verse 26. See, I am setting before you today a blessing today, a blessing today, and a curse. The blessing, if you listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, and if that I am commanding you today. And the curse, if you do not listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from that way which I am commanding you today, by following other gods which you have not known. Verse 29, and it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering. So they're about to go into Canaan, right? Joshua's just about to get to Joshua, to possess it that you have a, shall place the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. This two places, so a physical reminder of you can choose whether you will go into bondage again by disobeying God or you can go into blessing by obeying God. And then look in chapter 12, verse 8. Chapter 12, verse 8, in that second paragraph, look at this. You shall not do at all, at all what our, we are doing here today. You ready? Look at this. Every man doing whatever is right in his own eyes. The greatest tragedy of American history is that this is exactly what American democracy has become. You ready? Write it in. What American democracy has become, the right... For everyone to do what is right in their own eyes. But now I want to link this specifically to tonight's topic. This could be easy to miss. It may surprise you that the scripture actually directly links this concept to the forms of government. This is an amazing find, right? Uh, So it's essential that we don't miss something here. Be turning to Joshua. So uh, after Numbers, Deuteronomy... Um, uh, excuse me, Judges. And the, next one is, the next book is Joshua, and then comes Judges, right? So uh, be turning with, with me to Judges chapter 21. It's essential that, that we don't miss this. From the time of Moses' proclamation, right? The blessing for obedience and the curse for disobedience. Um, from the time he read that, let's move forward 400 years. They now lived in Canaan and had lived there for four centuries with God's appointed judges serving as their leaders. But look at how the nation of Israel is living. Look at this. Judges chapter 21, verse 25. This is the last verse of the book of Judges at the end of those 400 years of the Judges, right? After God had brought them out of Egypt. Look at this. Verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. One issue. The government. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You ready for this? Don't miss it. It's a striking linkage. Here's your blanks no king, and everyone does what's right in their own eyes. But they misinterpreted what had gone wrong. See, they thought the answer, and you'll know this well, I'll be turning with me to 1 Samuel. So, right after Ruth, which is the next book, go to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 8, and what happens is they misunderstand and they think what they need is an earthly king. They want an earthly king, and we see this tragedy start to unfold here with Samuel as the last judge and also a prophet. He was both, and look with me at verse 4 in Samuel chapter 8, 1 Samuel chapter 8. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, Behold... You have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. Right? Now jump down to verse 19 with me, right? The last paragraph. Nevertheless, the people refuse to listen to the voice of Samuel after he's told them all the horrible things that are going to happen if they re- re- reject and take an, uh, uh, an earthly king Um the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel and they said, no, but we shall have a king over us that we may be like all the nations. By the way, for 400 years, God had been trying to make them unlike all the nations, his people, his nation, so he could use them to save the rest of the nations of the world through his amazing good news. So notice that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. So look at Israel's huge misunderstanding. Ready? Write it in. (laughs) This is unbelievable, right? They thought that the answer for their nation was human government. Can you believe how incredibly contemporary this is? This is why we don't need a new Bible. There isn't a new age. The new age is always just the old age all over again. The content changes, but the issues remain absolutely identical. See, when a nation comes to the point that the people are doing what's right in their own eyes, it means that their trust is no longer in God. And where do they look for the answer to their problems and for their security when God is no longer the answer and their security? They look to the government. And is this not America today? Look at God's form of government. This is astounding to me. Here you are in another one of these sections where they, they, they're rejecting God. Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes and notice God's form of government. Look at verse five again, back to verse five. And they said to him, behold, you have grown old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations, verse six. But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel and they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord and the Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you. This is God's, God talking now to Samuel, the last judge and the prophet. For they have not rejected you, but here's the key. They have rejected me from being king over them. You ready for God's plan for a nation? Write it in. That he reigns, as king over the nation. And that's true no matter what their supporting form of government is. So as hard as it is in today's environment, I want to stop and ask us to completely forget politics for the evening and to just think biblically. It's sad that I have to continue to emphasize that, but I do. Don't be co-opted by the, the spirit of the age in any direction right now. Just let this sink in. God's form of government is actually the opposite of democracy. In fact, you see it in written large in the millennial future millennial reign of Christ, when the perfect king reigns over the world as king in his millennial kingdom, right? God's form of government is actually the opposite of democracy. It's a monarchy, but as we saw in 1 Samuel here, it's not... A monarchy led by a person like Nebuchadnezzar or King Saul or even a righteous king like King David. That's not God's real form of democracy. David was was unfortunately a fallback because they had rejected God from being king. See, it's a monarchy. God's uh, government is a monarchy led by a king who's perfectly righteous, absolutely just, all-wise, all-knowing, and all-powerful. And see, when a nation accepts this, right, regardless of their form of government, if they accept God as being king over them, the role of the national leaders is to declare that God is the ruler. And they're supposed to find out what God wants for the nation and then lead the people in following God's ways and God's plan. That's the role of human government. There is a role for human government. It's established In the scripture, many, many times. But they're supposed to always have the ruler with a capital R be king over them is to be God. And now I'm hoping that this biblical understanding has given us a way to depoliticize thinking about the state of our country right now. I don't know anyone who believes that America, as a nation, sees God as our ruler. And I don't know of anyone who thinks that the leaders in Washington see their primary role, their primary role as finding out God's will for the country and then leading us in that direction. I'm not speaking about individuals. I'm speaking speaking about our whole national government combined. It's just not searching for God to be our ruler. So with this background, I'd like to give two perspectives. Perspective number one. Perspective number one. It's not helpful to argue with people. Oh, let this sink in. It's not helpful to argue with people about whether we are or were a Christian nation. I'd like to try to give some concepts here that may help us in this incredibly challenging, argumentative, divided time in our country. You see, we're in a day where there's an enormous division about what America was and what we are, and what we ought to be, right? There's this huge war going on. And in the midst of this, I'm going to offer a series of concepts that may bring some balance and bring our focus back to where I believe the word would have us spend our time and our energy. Concept number one. Americans weren't nearly as bad as many progressives say we were. And I wouldn't be surprised if there's Plenty of people out there, they're going to say, that's right, amen. Americans weren't nearly as bad as many progressives say we were, but key concept number two goes right along with it. You ready? Americans weren't nearly as good as many conservatives say we were. (laughs) Let me lend some support to this by giving us a historical perspective. Think about where we are today. I suspect that every person who's watching would agree with two things. Number one that today's societal ethics about sexuality and pornography have become evil. That it's it's a sinful, societal approach to sexuality and pornography. And number two, I suspect everyone watching would believe that slavery, where people are kidnapped, taken from their homes, purchased as a commodity, and then owned by another human, is evil. I suspect that the people watching agree and believe both of those things to be true. So, now I'd like us to ask some questions. And listen very carefully. You have to think with this. Can we justify our country's sexual sins today because we no longer allow slavery? Notice the trade-off in the question. And can one generation say to another, our brutality... Is offset by our chastity. In other words, we had really high sexual ethics, right? And so the fact that we were brutal means we, we the brutality gets offset by our chastity. Let me press that farther. Or can anyone say our sin of pride is offset by our courage? Right. The sin of pride, the the um, virtue of of courage. Somehow the virtue of courage means that you don't have to worry about the sin of pride, right? Or, one more, our sin of greed is offset by the fact that we go to church, right? Sin and virtue, and somehow there's this offset. So, let me ask a national question now. Is a slave-owning nation a Christian nation simply because its other laws are based upon Scripture, Let me ask that again. Is a slave-owning nation a Christian nation simply because its other laws are based upon Scripture? I doubt that any of us think it's okay to live in one kind of sin simply because we don't practice another kind of sin. And of course, Scripture would reject this concept outright. The absence of one kind of sin is never a justification for the presence of a different kind of sin. The bottom line is God's word calls us through the power of the Holy Spirit to be set apart and for Christ to live in us so that we turn from all sin, corporate sins, individual sins, sins of justice, sins of mercy, sins of sexuality, sins of greed and finances, sins of powering and lording it over, all of those things. So here's an ugly fact about American history. Again, I'm just being factual. Enormous portions of our nation and the church completely ignored both the scripture and the constitution by rejecting in a most wicked way, the truth that all men were created in the image of God and that all of us are created equal. In fact, for more than a century, often the church twisted biblical interpretation to be either supportive or at least to essentially remain silent about the issue of slavery Tag up. Yet, because many Americans were industrious and honest and chaste and modest and law-abiding and God-fearing, we romanticize our historical righteousness and we massively underplay both the personal and corporate sins of those generations. Because they were chaste, we say, don't worry about their brutality. And of course, slavery is just the most obvious of the sins that many in our history have participated in. Has there not always been sin? Has America not always had sinners in it? Uh, this is, is one reason why I can say that Americans of the past generations weren't nearly as good as many say they were. Concept number three how's that for us being humbled? Being humbled. Taking responsibility for the corporate sin of our people concept number three It's a verifiable historical truth that most of our laws were based upon Scripture I already give you gave you multiple quotes and told you that 10 more than 10,000 times the US Supreme Court Imagine the number in the state Supreme Courts and other levels of courts um, were, were based on scripture as their answer so This is actually true regardless of whether a person believes it should have been the case or not. It's just factually historical. Concept number four. It's ultimately, here's your blank, it's ultimately beyond debate. Listen, it's ultimately beyond debate to know how many law-abiding citizens in our history were also true followers of Christ. Because the vast majority of people, you go back four, five, six generations, the vast majority of Americans were law-abiding, God-fearing citizens, whether they followed Christ or not. Concept number five, lots of people who follow the law, this is important, lots of people who follow the law never have a relationship with God. Listen, Americans, listen, this is important for our country because our history is so intermingled with, uh, with Christianity. Lots of people who follow the law never have a relationship with God and so aren't Christians. Concept number five, excuse me, six. Thus, it's ultimately futile. This is important. It's ultimately futile to argue that a nation that has biblical laws is or was a, in quotes, Christian nation. In fact, let me illustrate this in a way that I think will make sense to a bunch of us, right? Um, The term Christian nation um, is really exposed by this. Most of the the sociologists and um, missiologists, right, the, the people who study missions, world missions, most of them believe now that there are more than 100 million Christians in China. Think of that. The greatest numeric revival in the history of the world has happened in the last two generations in the country of China. So, there's probably more Christians in China than in any other nation in the world. And in China, by the way, it's costly to be a Christian, so nobody signs up and raises their hand for Jesus, who isn't a true follower of Christ in China. So let me ask you a question. Is China a Christian nation? You can see there that the, the idea falters because that's not at all of national focus even though God is bringing about an amazing revival and massive explosive growth of his church there. So here's my opinion. Even though it's absolutely clear that most of our nation's laws were established based upon the Bible, saying that we're a Christian nation gets us essentially nowhere in today's discourse of ideas. I think there's lots of downside because people just Uh, don't pay attention. And I've seen limited or no upside, right? So some might argue, but my experience is that people essentially all have their minds made up on this question and the argument gets us nowhere. But God, this is important. I'd like us all to change our focus back to arguing history, ideology, and philosophy and politics to God having something that every believer can do that is nation-changing no matter what their nation is like. Write it in. Here it is. In fact, the Chinese church really gets this. You ready? A fundamental biblical truth. Living like Christ still has as much power to help change a nation as it ever has. Let me say that again. Living like Christ still has as much power to help change a nation as it ever has. So where should we be focused? Based upon this, where should we be spending our time and our energy? We should have the same focus that we were always supposed to have. Guess what? You go back a couple of weeks. We're supposed to have a single-minded focus on being like Christ. We're supposed to let Christ be first place in everything. That has the power to change a nation that it has always had, and it doesn't matter how evil a nation gets, there is awesome power in that. Perspective number two. Perspective number two. Regardless of national labels, right? Christian nation, not Christian nation. Regardless of national labels, The scripture is absolutely clear about God's expectations for every nation. This is really important. Given the concepts that we've just covered, this may seem contradictory, right? But it's not. It's simply another set of biblical concepts that we have to hold in tension. Right? We have to hold this intention. While it's impossible to go back in our history and know how many Americans We're truly followers of Christ. And we do know that for generations, unlike any nation in history, America was a republic committed to being led by the principles of God's word, even when we didn't follow it. Right? America is unique in that sense, historically. It's built into the very fabric of our laws, our communities, our culture. And for nearly two centuries, even the U.S. Supreme Court upheld these principles thousands, count them, thousands of times. And there's something else that's irrefutable. Today, as a nation, America is living exactly the way the Israelites lived at the end of the Judges. Listen to this biblical statement and tell me if this isn't perfectly descriptive of our nation today, and everyone did that which was right in their own eyes. So as I finish, listen to the words of French philosopher Alexis de Tocqueville. And after he visited America in the, the 1800s to evaluate why our nation was experiencing such unprecedented success and progress in nearly every aspect of society, right? The world was blown away by what happened in this young nation. And he especially, as, a, as a, an, actually an atheistic philosopher, but he was just stunned and he penned these words that ring out through the ages, write it in, America is great because America is good. Spoken as an atheist. And if America ever ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. In fact, as we're going to see, as we're turning back to Deuteronomy, back to Deuteronomy chapter 8 now, turning back to Deuteronomy, indeed, not only will America cease to be great, but America will cease to be As we close, I want us to turn to this amazing passage, right? And listen to the profound message it has in the text for our nation today. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 7. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water and fountains and springs flowing forth in valleys and hills. A land of wheat and barley, of vines and figs and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey. Is this not what God did for us? Verse 9, a land where you shall eat food without scarcity, in which you shall not lack anything. A land whose stones are iron, and out of whose hills you can dig copper. If you're listening from Arizona, we are the Copper State. This is a literal, literal, direct uh, message to us. Verse 10, when you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. Verse 11, listen America, beware lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes which I am commanding you today, lest when you have eaten and are satisfied, oh, let this sink in and have built good houses and lived in them. And when your herds and your flocks multiply, and your silver and your gold multiply, and all that you have multiplies, then your heart becomes proud, and you forget the Lord your God, who brought you out from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Verse 17, verse 17. Otherwise, oh, listen to this. You may say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you the power to make wealth, that he may confirm his covenant, which he swore to your fathers, as it is this day. Verse 19, and it shall come about that if you ever forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I testify against you this day that you shall surely perish, speaking to the nation. Listen to the last words. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so you shall perish because you would not listen to the voice of the Lord your God. So tonight, regardless of what you think about history or politics, this is a truth that will always stand. Nobody can get out of God's law and power, right? No matter how powerful, how brilliant, how clever, how strong, how talented, or how wealthy a nation is, if it jettisons the principles of the king, listen, thus says the Lord, not me, thus says the Lord, that nation will fall. But the great news is, a nation that honors the king can stand against anything. That nation enjoys the blessings of God himself. God enables them, secures them, empowers them, protects them, he strengthens them, and that nation will endure. But here's an important note for the true followers of Christ in our nation. Whether America returns to God and experiences another spiritual awakening or not, God is calling the church to be revived. Listen, He's calling every believer to repent and to live the spirit-filled life and to be like Jesus. These things don't change with elections or who's in power or any other societal circumstances. We can't determine what our nation will do, but by God's grace, we can determine what we will do. And for our part, God is calling us to purity, grace, mercy, love, holiness, And he's calling us to serve others regardless of what they believe and regardless of how they live. And when we do this, when we do this, some of them will see Christ in us and will turn to him. And that is our great privilege, our great honor, and our great calling. Listen, church. The hope of every nation is that the bride of Christ will be the pure bride of Christ. The hope for America is not in Washington. The hope for America is not in democracy or capitalism. It's not in, the hope for America isn't even in social justice or whatever cause that you want to take on outside of the whole counsel of God and his whole word. The answer for America is will the church fall on our faces And accept the responsibility for our corporate sin. And say, oh God, use me to help you save this land. Let's pray. Oh God, we as a nation, we have gone far from you. And Lord, help us to be reminded tonight that many aspects of our nation were far from you all the way through. Even when... The nation aspired most, as we've heard from these historical statements, most nearly all trying to obey your law. But Lord, um, many were doing it in our own strength, our own pride. How often do we still have, we've got this, we're going to overcome this. Even this pandemic, we're going to overcome it because after all, we're America and that's what we do. And that great sin of pride, Lord, what's it going to take if this doesn't bring us to our knees and to repentance I wonder what it's gonna take. But Lord, what I thank you is, is that no matter what happens in our society, just like the the people in China from two and three generations ago, who said, even if I'm beheaded, which some of the great-grandfathers of today's Christians were, and great-grandmothers were literally beheaded for the faith, Lord. What they said was, I'm gonna live for Jesus no matter what. No matter what my nation says, no matter what the rulers say, and may that be our testimony, that the church will be like you And so, Lord, give this nation a hope. We love you so much. Thank you for the time to hear your word tonight, Lord. Amen.